Alright, we're going to jump into it like we do every week. Welcome to another episode of the Bladeology Podcast. This is episode 36, part 2. We are talking with Rainy Valatin of Valatin Custom Knives. So Rainy, you 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 briefed over something that I I want to I want to check back on cuz I, I think it's an important um you you're saying that you built knives for Almar. And mm-hmm. I I know that uh So the Valentins are known for for a couple things, but definitely the one thing that that I remember strongly was you guys being able to turn any just about obviously within reason most manual folders into automatics and that's definitely that's that's a that's a calling card that i think a lot of people recognize which is the conversion part of your sort of business um and i was wondering if you if you want to talk about that a little bit because i i remember i remember uh a famous story of of chris reeve uh finding out that your dad (laughs) converted a sabenza and and that's you know yeah so talk, oh, wow. can, we, can we talk about that a little bit yeah let's talk about the the stuff before we talk about the chris reeves okay. part of it that's the better <laughs> that's the better part uh so back in the day um my dad thought it'd be a really great idea to just buy already built knives and throw a function in them and it, it sounded great um but one thing about my dad he was really good at is he'd come up with a really great idea and then try and prove it afterwards. Um, and sometimes it would it would tend to make people a little crazy, um, notably my brother and myself, um, because he'd always want to do it with the Soldier of Fortune model. It was always uh, a new function, a new idea, a new something or other. And sometimes it was so last minute, we'd already have knives that needed function, but no function was going in him because he hadn't figured it out yet. So he started doing the 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 odd and end um, conversions. Um, he did some of the original Almar Sear lockbacks, um, which taught us really early on that we didn't want to convert um, already existing lockbacks. They're uh, <clears throat> converting a lockback to begin with is, is a sucky process, and then you know, getting one to fit nice and clean and be right. And, you know, you have to replace the pins and um, nobody wanted screws back in their knives, which made a lot more sense. So that way you could take it apart, you know, liken it to if you buy a Maserati and you weld the hood shut, you know, that was kind of like putting pins in an automatic for us. It didn't make any sense. You're going to have to get in there and fix it maybe. Yeah. So he did all these conversions and stuff, and um, he did quite a few. He did uh, did some William Henry's at one time. Um, he even got me into a couple of those. I learned to hate those really quick because they're so thin. <laughs> they're a sweet little knife, but they're yeah. a nightmare to convert. Um, and then I've I've, di- I've done some you know, all kinds of conversions, but he was he was really into it and did a bunch of them. Um, like I said, he started with some of the Almars and stuff first because him and Al were really good friends. And then um, somebody asked him if he would turn a Criff's Reeves Sabenza into an auto. And Dad said, well, I don't know. Um, let me look at the thing and, and see what I can figure out. So he does it. Not only does he do it, but he does it really sweet. No extra screws, just gets a button and turns in an automatic, and that turned into a landslide of, can you fix my Sabenza? 
and make it auto. Oh, <laughs> and so he did some overscales, which was basically a nice piece of pearl or mammoth molar, or not molar, but uh, mammoth ivory. And it'd have a pivot point near the rear. And the front would just be a bar that would penetrate inside of a, a short slot. So you could pivot a function and make it fire. So he was doing that. And Chris found out. Well, Chris is very anti-automatic. Um, I've had dinner with Chris. Oh, yeah. He's <laughs> South African. Right. I've never met him, so I don't know. I'm just going off on a whole. We had dinner across the street at Mangio's, that Italian place. Yeah. There at, at Blade. And he had invited in some friends from Milan and uh, uh, another part of Italy. They were all his friends. He, they, I don't know if you ever know anything about Chris, but yeah, that man's had a wild life. So um, he brings in on the, these Italian guys and, and we all sit and had dinner. And he was telling us about his cross country run on a bike he bought and did a little work on. And he just. He said, everybody, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to take off and drive. You guys follow me, and we'll just have a good time. <laughs> mm, all right. So he literally just literally just started driving across Africa. Um, wow. I don't know how far he got. He got pretty, pretty buzzed near the end of the story, so it kind of went a little south. But eventually, he figured out Dad was converting his knives into autos, and we get a note from a lawyer, a cease and desist note mm. well i don't know if you guys are aware but if you buy a car from a company and you pay for it it's yours you can paint it you can scrap it you can put big wheels on it you can do anything you want with it right well that's kind of the same way with a custom knife or a regular knife wonder it's yours so the cease and desist was kind of a threat more than anything else there was nothing really behind it he couldn't really make a stop so Dad looked at me. He says, what do you think I should do? I said, I think you shouldn't worry about it. I'll keep going. He says, buddy, it's a cease and desist. I said, cease and desist. I mean, you built, <laughs> it's yours. You're not buying knives from Chris to convert. You're getting the knives from the owners of these knives to convert. Chris doesn't really have anything to say about it. I mean, he may not be happy about it, but that's irrelevant. Because sure. not his knife anymore. So then we got another note. And it was a little more strongly worded. It's still a cease and desist if, uh, overall, but uh, it was a much stronger note. <laughs> wow. But uh, yeah, it, it, you know, that's that's a case of somebody's ego getting in front of, you know, common sense. But I can understand. If you ever got a chance to meet, yeah. yeah, if you ever mm -hmm. get a chance mm -hmm. to meet Chris, you'll under well, before anyway. Yeah. You won't get a chance mm -hmm. these days, but uh, before he was. An animate, uh, animated kind of guy with stories, and another Mel Pardue, only much more wild. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, that's definitely that's one of those um, that's one of those industry stories that I, I definitely have I've heard. And uh, yeah, you know, some people. It's it's funny that you mentioned that. I think that's a that's definitely a, a knife community discussion. But I think a lot of a lot of makers are very impassioned about what happens to their knife. After it's been sold, well, I mean, if that were a custom or something, I could understand that. But like, if it's a production knife, like that's kind of out of your hands. It is. Yeah, yeah. it is. And yeah. that's what I told my dad. I said, if you buy a truck and you destroy it, it's yours to destroy. Right. If you buy a mm -hmm. Sabenza and you want to grind the whole thing in, in half, just don't ask for for uh, you know <laughs> help on fixing it from Chris. Yeah, it's you like know? I, mean, I mean, you have to modify. I mean, 
once you sell some at a production level or whatever, like people are going to do stuff with it. You know? Well, you know that nifty little um, wave thing that mm-hmm, he does? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, used to, we did that with a thumb stud. Get a little longer thumb stud. The Emerson wave? Oh, yeah, I'm wrong. Yeah. We're talking Emerson. Yep. Yeah. I get those guys crossed up. But, uh, yeah, it was yeah, the, yeah, the wave, it was yeah. still crazy. No, the, the wave, you know, we used to do that with a thumb stud. Make a slightly mm-hmm. longer thumb stud on the inside of your pocket. So when you stuck it in with your clip, you just push the blade against your pocket and opened it up and it flung, flung the blade out. Yeah, that's that's a logical uh that's a logical one. It's it's yeah, the, the wave sense. is yeah. 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 He didn't invent the wave. <laughs> no, one the of his customers did. Yeah, it's like it was like a guard or something for knife fighting or whatever. Because and then it just happened to, to have that secondary function. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Uh, at one time, you could buy a special. It was more or less a zip tie if you want to get technical, but it mm-hmm. was a heavy, heavy-headed zip tie, and you could put it on like the Spyderco loop or the hole. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And stick it in your pocket and snap it right out the same way. I did that on, I've never done that on a Spyderco, but I did that on a uh, Benchmade Onslaught because it yeah. had a spider hole in it. So, Yeah, a customer, of mine, easy. a customer of mine sent me a pair of uh, Daltons, and they had those on them. Hmm. It was a right and left matching set of Daltons. Oh, that's actually pretty neat. Yeah, so you could put one in one pocket, one in the other, and then jerk them out that with those is, funny little things on there. That's pretty incredible. Yeah, wow. I never thought about that. <laughs> <laughs> Man, you, you could sell like a set of so knives. you fucked up, Elijah. Yeah. You needed two onslaughts and two, two in one. There you go. Has. Well, no, it's giving me ideas right now, actually. Oh, man. Right, <laughs> There's so much out there to play with. Yeah. I, I got stuff that I wanted to do forever, and I, you know... I'm busy doing orders, so I never get a chance to do the stuff I want to do. But, mm-hmm. you know, the only one thing I get, the saving grace for all of that is, is I get a lot of customers that say, hey, this is the pattern I want. Have a ball, you know. Hmm. Seems like a question to make your struggle. Uh, do you exhibit at the New York Custom Knife Show? No, I never have. Uh, my dad and mom did one year. Um, and that's as close as we've ever got. I'm not really a big fan of city anymore. No, because I, I grew so, up in the Bay Area, so my first experience of what will be considered a, a full dress um, custom was a Valadin. Problem is, I don't know which Valadin it was because now I'm assuming it was from a dealer. So it was the New York Custom Knife Show uh, about ten years ago. It was my first custom knife show. Uh, I was 13 years old then. Uh, I guess I was 11 oh, years wow. ago. Okay. Yeah, I've been in this industry. I'm 24 now, but I've been doing this since I was 13. And insane. back then it was Sabenza or Strider. And I was like, okay, which one do I buy? Which one do I buy? Ended up leaving that show with neither. And next year buying what I wanted. But that was, I didn't know about custom, custom knives. I knew the Sabenza, the Strider, and the Hinder, and Spider Co. and Benchmade. That was what I looked at. And when I went there to go buy a Sebenzer Strider, I was a world of custom knives. And I ended up buying neither just because I was like, wait, there's a lot more out there. I got to figure this out first before I make my decision. Being 13 years old, I was like, it's 300 to $400 for a knife. Like, I got to figure out what I want to do. Uh, but the first full dress thing I saw happened to be of a lot in with Blue Mammoth and Blue Damascus. 
And I was blown away because at that time, I, it was the first time I've seen that was blue. Like, even the blade, I was like, what is this? It was custom. Yeah, so that's because you were at that show. It was probably Hank Rebell. What Nick, was it in a... Was it like a dealer case or was it on someone's table? I don't remember at that point. Uh, it's probably a dealer's case because back then even knife makers used a lot of cases. When, 20, when I was 13, I guess that was 2008 or 2009, at the New York Knife Show, because uh, there's a lot of rant, like the knife thing wasn't as still as comfortable glass cases back then. So very few guys had knives just sitting there on the table. Most yeah, of the shows I went to when I was younger, they, they would always have glass cases. <laughs> We've had ours out for people to touch and play with and, you know, forever. Um, we only had one year where Blade Show got weirded out and wanted us to put them under glass. Really? They actually said yeah. that? Yeah. Wow. It was, I think somebody managed to cut themselves, but, you know, I mean, it's a knife show. Good God, people. It's true. It's going to happen. You know, if well, you're I mean, worried yeah, about I mean, getting yeah. cut, I mean, I've seen some spectacularly stupid stuff. Um, uh, the day that I met Ralph Dewey Harris, we were in the right side of that small building, and I was I had just walked away from his table, and a guy come walking along swinging a duffel bag, one of the you know you zip zip it up and the handles are above the zipper. Mm-hmm. And he smacked this guy in the side of his thigh and a buoy knife that wasn't in a sheath slammed forward, went through the duffel bag and through this guy's pants and into his leg. Mm. Wearing white pants, you could watch them turn red. I mean, it was like a, it was like somebody was painting them. And I was what like, are crazy. you kidding me? What? I mean, all of a sudden there's people there. They, they strapped a tourniquet on this poor guy had an ambulance in there. This guy's like apologizing. You're apologizing for swinging a deadly weapon, dude. <laughs> Crazy. Uh, yeah, that's... Uh, it's easy to... Yeah. They're, they're all deadly weapons. It's like He had... Yeah, yeah once you're always around, you just get comfortable. Yeah, mm-hmm. well, he had eight or ten of these in there, um, but he only had one not in a sheath. But when he hit that guy, he hit it really solid, and it just slid right through there. It was a big bowie. It had to be, had to be fifteen or sixteen inches tip to tail and three eighths thick. I wanted to go back to uh, let's see, two two quick things, uh, collaborations. Um, we we briefed over that, but there's there's one collaboration that till this day, uh, is still in production by Spiderco, which is the subhilt, right? That um that Butch did. Mm-hmm. So was that originally? That must have originally been a custom, or he did he design that from scratch for for Spiderco? It was he did he did a couple of them. They were a custom, but they didn't have the Spiderco hole. Um, so he and uh, Sal got together, and Sal and him kind of worked it out where he would use the hole. In fact, he's got I think he's got a prototype with it still in my mom's possession that actually was the very first prototype of that knife. Um, but he put the Vider, the Spyderco hole in it and he did a few other modifications that Sal wanted. And that's how that was born. Except my dad designed the function to go in it at the same time 
that he sent Sal out the prototype so that when Sal started producing them, we were buying them at a hundred at a time, converting them and reselling them. Um, which of course gave, you know, gave rise to the Spyderco Subhill automatic double action. Um, and then they were talking about bringing out a mini, which they changed the shape of. So when they changed the shape, it, it kind of, he had to rethink the action a bit. Um, it wouldn't, it, it's, uh, it's not the same knife. Mm. Um, very similar, but not the same. Yeah. And that, I think the, they just recently stopped making the, the mini. They did. They quit making the mini. They're going to continue, quote unquote, making the, the full size. Uh, and we've got a standing order, but we haven't seen any and we haven't seen any more being produced yet. So I remember when the first one came out and I was like, I was infatuated with it and I couldn't afford it at the time. But I I thought it was one of the better looking spider coats that I'd seen at the time. I think it was a better looking spider coat. It was also a lot tougher than most anything they'd produced prior to that. And I'd had most well, the blades of them. are super thick, aren't they? Yeah, you can punch them through a car door, believe it or not. Yeah, I know. Like I did it. Yeah. yeah, and it's built to where you can hold on to it to do so. I mean, most knives, you know, you remember. I don't know. I'm the old guy here, so I remember <laughs> the old days where everybody was jamming blades through car doors and looking at you like, "See, you look, know? it it works." Well, I uh, well, I've been to a lot of hammer ends, and these days they use 55 gallon drums. And you're like, it'll hold up. Yep. <laughs> the amount of knives I've seen through 55 gallon drums or every hammer, and there's always a 55 gallon drum that's just been pierced to crap. Yeah, <laughs> couldn't hold water now. No, that that subhilt Spyderco is a it's a thick boy. It's it's got like it's it's a thick blade. It's a thick handle. It's a nice you you can put your hand on it and and grab it and not have to worry about it. Yeah, and it was designed to have a penetrator tip. Yeah, right. Yeah, it, it's got a decent flare. It's got a nice guard that way. You know, that's why I was saying you can actually. I remember the old days when people were jamming things through car doors, and they'd slide over the guard and slide right down the blade. You know, and like really people. That reminds me of that one video uh, that we had talked about at, I think, the California Custom Show about some fabled OTF that some guy was, like, just... The, the piranha? Stabbing, yeah, or something that was just stabbing a 55-gallon drum. Oh, the... It was completely... Desert fine. Knife Works, Sand Shark. Yeah. Yeah. That was, uh, right, that was a 50-gallon drum. People, you know, people love... The thing is, people love stabbing knives through, through steel. That's, like, I, there's a fascination with 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 puncturing uh something that's wrong yeah exactly yeah uh, you know it's tip retention it's heat treat it's the whole yeah you can also do it with like literally any hatchet right that yeah. actually just reminded me <laughs> yeah. I, so I, I at one point in my career i was very into making bushcraft knives out of 3v mm-hmm. and the wow. day i found out a 3v bushcraft knife could cut through a nail i was like this is insane <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I took my knife i made it convex ground because that was the shit in 2012 <laughs> and took a hand yeah but back then it was the big deal mm-hmm. uh and uh took a hammer and two hits through i went through the nail and i was like this is amazing a knife could cut the nail hmm. <laughs> and i would tell that to all my customers that's why you want three of you for your bushcraft knives yeah nobody yeah, I no, guess, realizes there's... nails were soft I forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, the newer steels today. There's some of those that are pretty amazing. M- M390, uh, you know, that's not a lot newer, but it's a much newer. 
at least for some of us anyway, uh, S30, X60, and then, you know, it gets crazier as it goes. Yeah, a bunch of imagine, super steels. I would imagine that there's a definite jump um, that like between this steel and that steel. Like there's a lot of filler, I think. And then like between, like you said, M390, I'm sure that's a lot better than whatever, but there's a whole lot of stuff that's in between. Yeah, I don't think there is. Yeah. And a lot of steel that doesn't get, get the, you know, get the press that it needs either. I mean, you know, when it first started out, everybody was digging the ATS-34. Well, ATS was done by Hitachi. So everybody decided, well, you can't you can't import your steel. you got to have it made in the U.S. So then 154CM was out, and then um, Crucible did another one, actually. It was very similar to ATS, uh, uh, virtually identical, to be dead honest. But, um, but because it was produced here, it was the big deal, you know. So it's it's... Hitachi ATS is probably one of the best steels I ever used. 154 CM is equally as good uh, because, again, it's virtually identical. But uh, you know, um, there's a lot of ATS steel out there that's worth using. Yeah, ATS 34, probably I one heard of the. It's really, really easy to polish. It's it polishes nice. It will hold an edge. Um, that little hunter that I was telling you about my very first knife, that's, that's out of, uh, 440C. And I was, you know, back then I wasn't even a fan of 440C. Um, and then I've made some D2s, you know, it's not a, a true stainless cause it's not above 14%, but it's still a really great steel. Um, but it's ironically more expensive than ATS. So yeah, it makes no sense to me. I've at one time you could get D2 for dirt cheap. And uh, I don't know if anybody's looked at Jersey Steel Baron, but D2 is higher than 154CM or, you know, virtually anything else as far as uh, that non-stainless goes. That's because Nick is probably taking it all or something. <laughs> I don't use the D2. Well, I, don't us, I don't use it. Unless it's three you're, up there, you're up there like every weekend, it seems like. Well, I used to work there. You yeah. worked at the Baron? No, well, I... Uh, when I went full time, when I graduated high school, I was in college for a semester, and I told my I came home one day, and I'm like, "Mom, I'm out." And she's like, "What do you mean? Like, I'm gonna go make knives full time for a year. I got an apartment lined up in Jersey in a shop. And I'm out next week." And I was used to talk to Pete a lot there, and they offered me to rent some shop space out from them, and I did that for about two and a half years. Eventually, I ended up living with Pete for two of the years. So oh, I that'd be a story in itself. Yeah, it was an interesting two years. Well, I ended up learning a lot about steels and metallurgy and water jetting. Yep. So I learned quite a bit from that side of the business. But uh, like I said, I saw a lot of what you know, knife makers were were uh, on not a normal bunch of people. So no, deal, I, I got to see the customer service to deal with a bunch of knife makers, and that was pretty fun. People yeah. come out screaming every other day. Like <laughs> <laughs> God. Yeah, case knives uh, was. I just worked more alongside them than with them. Huh. Case knives was looking at at you know, one time uh, actually coming out of the dark ages, um, and so we got an invite to go up there and and hang out with uh, with those guys for a week in Pennsylvania, and uh, it was fun, um, but they're really not wanting to move out of what they do. For the most part, I mean, they, they, they're making efforts of it, but it was funny because we got there and got to talking and, uh, they had another maker in there just, uh, 
couple of months before us. And uh, that was one of the things Don, uh, he's the uh, executive financial officer. He took us out to dinner and he says, knife makers are a strange breed, aren't they? I said, I don't know. Are they? <laughs> you he tell started me. telling me this story about the, the last guy they had out. And he got done with it. I looked at him and I said, are you kidding me? <laughs> you guys dealt with all that? Oh my God! <laughs> mm. Some of some of us are rather strange characters in this business. I'll tell you. Yeah, Even, you know, it's also that's true. We're also technically not machinists that are pretending to be machinists. Yeah, I don't. I don't call. Yeah, no. So I'm like, not we, a machinist. most of us don't actually understand how like metal should come and what it should be, and you expect everything to be flat and perfect, and that doesn't happen in the perfect unless you're in the perfect world, which we're not. Nope. So like I just every day he like pulls hair out. A customer will call him. Be like, my steel isn't straight, and he's like, it doesn't come straight. That's for your job. And or or like it's not polished. So he's like, you're not buying a mirror. You're buying your raw piece of steel. Like those are always yeah. the two things. Like he'll come out pulling his hair out. A steel's bit. Well, it's soft. You can bend it back. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I got a batch of steel from Chad one time, and not one bar was even remotely straight. And I'd never gotten, you know, you don't get straight steel from a Damascus maker, but I'd never gotten steel that looked like this. And I called him up and I said, did you send me pretzels? Did you send me steel? <laughs> and he kind of gave me the same thing. Steel, man, you straighten it. <laughs> you figure it out, guy. I did the hard These part. really bent, though. <laughs> yeah, I guess if you have to ask it, like, if you got to talk about if it's bent or not, I guess you're in the wrong, you're in the wrong business. <laughs> Yeah, you know, you get straight bars 72 inches long and you look down mm. them and they're definitely not straight, even if they're coming from Admiral or, or Crucible or anybody else for that matter. It's like trying um, to find a, a straight 2x4 at Lowe's. Or, yeah, or if you've ever heard of cold roll steel mm -hmm. um, versus hot roll, you know, one has a memory. So when you heat treat it, you better be prepared to straighten it if you're heat treating it yourself because it yeah. has a great memory. I wouldn't know. I just don't buy it. Cold steel. It just it just wants <laughs> yeah. it just wants to spring right back. That's the thing. Well, yeah. Anytime you heat treat it, it'll it'll warp no matter what you're doing. Mm. I mean, I ran into AEBL, and I think this was probably cold rolled steel, but it was twelve inch wide by seven foot long sheets. You know, and I'm like God, that's a boon, and it was cheap. But you know, when you grind a, a Damascus blade, you know the heat on one side makes it warp a little bit. You flip it over and you grind it and it straightens out. Well, AEBL likes to bend the same direction no matter what you did with this stuff. It made me crazy. Yeah, I kind of only use, I'll use exclusively ABL. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I kind of got it down. Cold uh, well, no, it only comes well from. I've always used it from P. Uh, I I know he gets phone calls from it regularly once in a while uh, that it's warping. Um, I make folders so. It's part of the job to deal with warp at this point. Yep. I bend maybe every other blade after he treat either way. So yeah. for me, it's whatever at that it's part point. of the deal. I'm yep. also machining 80, like a good chunk of my blade before he treat, including half of the bevel. And I'm removing so much material, no matter what I use, it's going to warp. I, I usually expect my blades to warp heavily during machining to where in my process, they're always clamped flat. So at, while they're being machined, they're at least flat. Yeah, uh, and then I can't send out for heat treat anymore because they don't plate quench, they air quench. So now it's in my process that my parts have to be plate quenched for folders at least. 
And then once in a while they warp and I have to straighten them with the little jig that I made, but it's just kind of in the process of making knives now. When I first started, yeah, I used to go crazy. It's warped. How do I straighten this? What do I do? And now it's just part of the job. Yeah. And back then you could send them off and get them back straight, but yeah. I haven't had a good luck with sending out for heat treat in the last year and a half or two. So, well, so yeah. rainy. Um, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna wrangle it back in from the technical side a little bit. Um, just to so everything that that you've been doing full time as as a as a knife maker, you're you're still doing that full time now. So I mean, you're still building all these dual actions. Uh pretty much the same way with with modifications that you have been and following in the tradition and there's a whole new like you have you have kids so there's a whole new era of of valens yeah three of them now wow and three boys are back in the shop and you you taught those guys and they and they learned from butch or how does that no they learned from me mostly okay Um, um, I'm a, I'm a better teacher than my dad was. You had, like I said, you had to be really, um, you had to be really receptive to learn from my dad. Cause it wasn't do this and this is why, or this could happen or, you know, none of that, that went on. It was, um, he showed you and then you learned it and then you incorporated it. And, um, that's kind of how that worked. But with the boys, they started young and uh, well, let me step back. I had a, uh, I got an apprentice. His name was Nate Clark. Um, you guys may have heard of him. He's knife maker still. Um, he doesn't do a lot of knives these days. He does all kinds of other odds and ends. But uh, um, Nate, in his gosh, sophomore year of high school, was looking for something to do, and so I brought him into the shop and started teaching him. And um. By the time he graduated high school and turned 21, he'd been my apprentice for seven years. And uh, so he became the maker that I was of a sort. You know, I didn't teach him the whole planet in that short of time. He was busy doing a lot of other stuff for me. But um, I literally figured out it's far easier to teach somebody who's never done anything in knives than it is to try and teach somebody that has an idea what they're supposed to do in making knives. Um, and like I, like Nick was saying, it, I, I'm not a, I'm not a machinist. I wouldn't boast or, or even, I wouldn't even broach that as a conversation because I am no machinist. I am an etch-a-sketch machinist maybe, but that's as good as that gets. And I only know this because my son, my dad bought a CNC machine. We got a mini mill too. And, um, we sent him off to learn some stuff. And so he went off to class and uh, he had a good time. And, and he found out that most machinists are the guys that come in, hit start and hit stop, pallet change, hit start, hit stop, pallet change. And that's what they do. And they're considered machinists. But the guy that was teaching the class flat out said, if you can't go in and program it or you can't go in and design it, and then go over to your machine and tell your machine what to do, whether you're doing it by knobs or by CNC or whatever, um, and get the product that you're looking for out the other end, you're not a machinist, or you are a machinist at that point, but you're not a machinist if you walk in and push the button to make the machine start, it kicks out a part, and then you get a new pallet. 
So you're, you're a machine you know, operator at that point. Yeah. And the reason he said that was, is there was a guy in the pre- previous class that came in and learned all this stuff from this guy. To give you an idea, this guy actually helped Bob, Bobcad design his program to work for us. Not us personally, but the, the industry. And um, he's a Russian guy. He's <laughs> very Russian. And uh, he um, he met this guy. And so the guy went home. And then uh, Sunday, he called him. He said, hey, um, after the class today, you think you could come over and give me some pointers? And he said, sure. So he went over there and guys got himself a brand new mini mill sitting there and got tools laying everywhere and collets and all this stuff. And he says, so how does this thing work? <laughs> he goes, what do you mean? How does this thing work? You said you were a machinist. He says, well, I am. I, I went into the company and they pointed the machine out and I went over and I pushed the button to start it and I pushed the button to stop it. He said, but I don't even know how to turn this thing on. So it was a wake-up call for, for him to realize that, you know, if you're going to be a machinist, you've got to be able to do it all, not just start the machine and then turn it off. That makes sense. Well-rounded. It does. And that's why I call myself an Etch-a-Sketch machinist, because while I use my numbers, I use a digital readout, and, uh, you know, I, I work with a specific set of numbers, I still have a lot of leeway, and I can play within that, that, that frame. I can even experiment and do whatever I want in process. So... You know, unlike a CNC machine, you know, you don't get that advantage. You, you you can sit there if you've got a laptop right on the machine and you can tweak and play with it there. That's one thing. But like my son, he goes up the stairs, plugs it into the computer, designs it, makes it work, does it virtually. Then he brings it down to the machine, plugs it in and makes the machine do it above the, the work surface so that it looks right, runs through its numbers right, doesn't hiccup. And then if it doesn't look right, he goes up and he changes it and tweaks with it and plays with it. And then he'll eventually come down and give it some steel to work on. And uh, the first time he ever, within two weeks of having the CNC, he had built a butterfly knife, um, fully functioning butterfly knife. And, that that uh, must be Kyle. It is. Okay. It is. And he, uh, you know, when he got to this class, he he put that butterfly knife at the top of his desk and when it came time to leave, the teacher of the class was trying to keep the knife. So, and he flat told him, he said, you know, has anybody got anything they've done on their own in class? And the only one to raise his hand was Kyle. So Kyle literally got the, they got the machine in. He started playing with it. They got the program. Next thing you know, he's making knives with it. So hmm. that's, that's our machinist. <laughs> that's, that's pretty handy. All right. I got a Hoss mini mill too. I got a Hoss mini mill. But as you're saying, I actually used to use the same term, Etch-a-Sketch Machinist. Because again, I was self-taught. But when I became a CNC machinist, I upgraded to professional asshole engineering. I mean, professional yeah. asshole engineering. Yeah. But and you're closer to a machinist. Much, <laughs> eh, I, just, I get her done. Like, yeah. <laughs> when, when I watch actual machinists work, I'm like, oh, that's how you do that. Okay. Right. <laughs> But today I'm like I, just, I get it done. I get it done proficient, uh, like properly, but it's with my own product. methods. And when a machinist watches me work, they're like, "Huh, that's an interesting way to do it." Yeah, shaking their so head. I'm like, like, "You got there, but how'd you get there?" <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm like, I just I made it work. This, this is my methodology for it. Uh, like, like my when I talk to a real machinist, a CNC machinist, it's still it's like you're speaking like. It, I understand what they're saying, but when they really get into uh, the letters and the numbers of it, 
uh, where like the actual G code. I'm like, yeah, you're talking foreign guy. I don't, yeah. I don't do it that I way. I was nerd nerd them at that point. Yeah. Well, I wish I knew whole... it. It's just I'm like mm-hmm. I don't know well, you it. Go for, you go to school for something like that, pretty much. You know, to... it's kind of no. It's the thing is, it's also kind of outdated. It's good to know, but it's kind of outdated. The it's yeah. cams, the really software's kind of generated all for you. It's still based off G code, though. It's it's the interesting part. It's still a G code kind of theory, um, quite a bit different. But uh, we actually had we bought a CNC, but it was just a converted Bridgeport um, with a computer, and you know, uh, and we had a guy come in and build us a, a driver box, and then we hooked the computer up to the driver box, and and actually used it a little bit. But it was really, you know, I mean, that was hardcore basic as you can get without you know doing it all by hand it was crazy um in fact we still got the pos in the shop and i'm trying to get rid of it but uh uh it had a bandit box that was they were using for the table and the bandit box when you opened up the top it had all these computer um little motherboards little sideways motherboards and it, they look like graphics cards without the fans on them and there was maybe 60 in there and basically that was a g-code converter um from the computer they were working on so they feed this information into this converter and it would convert g-code it would convert computer lingo to back to g-code and then make the cnc machine do it it was it was pretty bizarre um eventually we we changed out that whole bandit box and and put it's a computer up there with the driver box and you know there was a few things done with it but my my dad never chased it you know it was it wasn't really wasn't really what he wanted to do so when we got the cnc the mini mill um you know and finally got my kid involved then you know my kid just took off and ran with it so i mean that's that's good when you Sweet. when you show something like that you know and you, and you really dive into it yeah so he took, yeah, he took an actual class he took it, yeah. He, after he, yeah, after after he learned to use Bobcat and built his first CN, his built his first butterfly knife in the CNC. He then he took it. He took the class. <laughs> kind it of seems like the cart before the like, horse, but uh, I just know more. I want to take a class now. I just they don't really have them in New York, and I don't have time to travel. I got to run the business. Well, you know, I, I ran uh, it for almost four years. I, I know what I'm doing, but like, I know I could do it better. Right. Um, when you, when we get out of here, catch up with Jeremiah and get my email from him. Um, uh, plug you into Kyle and he could probably give you the information for this guy. I think this guy goes all over the country, including New York, but you got to know the guy. Um, yeah, we, we ended up hooked up with the guy from Bobcat to this teacher um and like i said he helped bobcad write the programming um originally for bobcad's original first set which was you know at the time it was uh, a quarter of the price of mastercam <laughs> oh, wow yeah mastercam's like in fact you don't even get to keep mastercam anymore you got to rent it so yeah it's like 10 g's that's how they get yeah. you man it's a pretty bad well, mastercam <laughs> Yeah, Bobcad's yeah. Bobcad you can pick up for, you know, twenty five hundred bucks. Yeah, that's my problem. It's like buy a CNC, then buy the software, then learn all this stuff. Uh, I, I to, use I use Fusion. It's like, my actual fusion ran out today. I'm literally doing it as we speak and it's like your terms have ended, which means I could use it, but I can't run the CNC tomorrow. 
So I right. gotta renew it. Yep. Well, with and with Bobcat, you get to keep your license for as long as you keep your license. <clears throat> In fact, Kyle's got to uh, get a hold of Bobcat and renew his license only because the hard drive that he had it on went south on him. So no more license, no more program. Although we have the program on disc, he's still gotta he's still gotta get a license to run it. What kind of so. bridge port is it that CNC that is converted? Oh God, it's an old. Uh... Oh man, is it a dovetail ram? What's that mean? Uh, the ram, the Elijah. We're not machinists. Top. We just buy the machines that work, and we run. <laughs> Are you them. talking about the bed being dovetailed? <laughs> not the bed. The head is the head on top. Does it go back and forth? Is it dovetailed, or is it oh, round? No. Most of them are no, dovetailed. No, it's um shit. I don't know. To be honest, well, like I said, because uh, I have it's... one. I have a 1946 Bridgeport, and it's a round ram. No one wants those. Are you it's talking about the ram one. being like the head itself? Yeah. Or what the oh, head's okay. on? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Uh, it's round. Okay. Wow. Oh, so it's real old then. Yeah. It's. Yeah. Uh, yeah we <laughs> picked it up with a with a uh, uh, cherry picker that you pick motors out of cars with, and uh, well, so we straddled the base, moved the head all the way back so it'd balance out. We even spun the head sideways to to get it to balance out a little better. But uh, it's got a air-fed uh, lock set of jaws. Reach up and push the button. It sucks the tool right in and holds onto it nice and tight. Um, then the the drivers on the on the bed uh, X and Y axis. Um, it sucks yeah. to, to call it up in there, man. That sounds fancy. On mine, yeah, you gotta, the, you gotta get a damn wrench and torque the, and tighten it up with my hand. Like, yep, yep, yep. That's what I do with my my basic manuals. Yeah. Mm. But yeah, this one's got an airlock head or an, an air fit head, and um, you know, I'm just mm. trying to find a new home for it. I, I have no desire to keep it. It's oh man, what I want with so. how much you want for it. Elijah, you're never going to make knives. You don't need it. Turn your first power. Hey, that's yourself. easier. That is way easier than, than moving one all the way from Ohio. Oh, yeah. You're on the same coastline as I am, aren't you? I Yeah, I'm in Portland. Get yeah. a shop, guy. Yeah, I need to Come get on uh, down. shop space. And, uh, you're not going to be able wrong. to bring it to the second floor at Bill's place. Uh, two hours and 40 <laughs> yeah, minutes right. from yeah, you, buddy. Just true. go south. Come down and say hi. Mm-hmm. I will. I'll, I'll come back. I'll you know where Rice Hill's at? Something out. You ever been down Where's south? It? No, Rice not Hill. much. Uh-uh, not at all. Okay, well, it's uh, 40 minutes south of Eugene. Hmm. Cool. And five minutes off the freeway. Out. Awesome. Yeah. Just, just, wait, just waiting to get that get that rolling. I was saying, yeah, we were uh, we were all going to be out there for Blade Show West, but that kind of that, yeah, plan, we that plan went south quick. Yeah, I was, we were going to look into the table even. Yeah. Tables are pretty inexpensive. I was going to get one right before they uh, said they were going to cancel it, but uh, they're pretty good price. Um, I think it'll be pretty good show if it lasts. Well, it's a step up from where it used to be by a long shot. So mm. I've heard that. Yeah. Yeah. It. Uh, the our my son's partners in uh, Horse Cave, Horse Cave Junction, Kentucky. And he drove out to hang out with us at the show, and uh, we all went up to see the Blade Show West. And uh, I hadn't been up there in a while. And the last time I saw it, it was at the like the Red Lion Inn, and it was really, really bottom Matt of Cook the barrel. Matt Cook told me some time. stories. 
Yeah. Yeah, it was it was pathetic. Mm. And then so we went up and got to see this one. It was actually it, it was it was Blade Show esque at least. Right. In presentation, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Presentation, the way it was set up. The other room, you know, the secondary room wasn't so nice, uh, which is where Reese and I sat and shot the ship for two hours. But <laughs> you're still you're still full time now. People can still contact you to make to make knives. I mean, you're still taking orders or, or how yeah. does that work? No, I still take orders, take orders from from dealers, mostly buyers, of course. Buyers are my bread and butter uh, as far as that goes. Dealers are my my extra fun because they, you know, they get a little bit of a better break um, and they order five or better at a time. So it's a little less time to make five knives at one time than it is to make five knives end to end to end. And I'm almost always got at least at least eight or nine knives going at one time. So, hmm. you know, in various points. But, you know, if you start six knives and they all work the same function and they all have the same liner lock, you know, even if they're not the same pattern, it's still you're running the same set of numbers. You're doing the same processes over and over and over again. So you can mark them all out, get them all prepped, walk over to the machine, punch down, cut a slot. All of them are done. When you get done, walk back to the desk and then move on to the next step. So it changes the time frame from, you know, a week in a couple of days to, you know, if you, if I started five knives on January one, I'll be done with all those same set knives by the 20th. So that's fast. Yeah. Well, we do, uh, we do for blade. We set up 40 to 55 days in advance and we work, um, on anywhere between 12 and 15 pieces each. And then generally within, Oh, I don't know, 10 minutes or so before we have to leave, we finish them up and either fly them or uh, ship them. So, I mean, that's that's the way to do it. The Blade Show Crunch is the ultimate, uh, you know. It is brutal. Yeah. No, it's it's intense. Working up until the last minute. Yeah. Well, see, up until a couple years ago, we'd always been done a few days before the show. And I'll say a few, anywhere between two and four, if we're lucky. Um, And so we'd always ship them out there originally. Um, And then one year we got where we were way behind, really either we were either dragging tail or we just weren't doing our job. I don't know which, but um, uh, dad said, you know, I just found out from the airlines, we can ship all these by them. And all we have to do is put it in a harsh hard case, lock it, tell them, it's trade show goods, or we can put a pistol in there and they'll guard it and cost us 50 bucks each way if we ship them back. Well, crap, that saves the hell out of the 500. I just got quoted by uh, FedEx to ship them out there for delivery day after tomorrow with, you know, $20,000 worth of insurance, which wasn't enough to cover the job, but it would have been enough to at least pay for the trip and and go on. But then again, a couple of years back after that, we literally did not finish, but five of the knives we were taking to the show, um, they were aesthetically finished, but they weren't functioning. So we didn't quite know what to do. So we went, got to the show and we did what I called a fire sale. Somebody that wanted a knife gave us half down. We would cover return shipping. We'd give them a hundred dollars off of what our original asking price was and we'd ship it to them within a week. 
We sold all the damn knives. It was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. Wow. Oh, it was it was bizarre. And there were six of us that went to the show. We literally walked out of the shop after 52-hour stretch, got in the van, drove all the way to Portland, jumped on an airplane. I can't imagine how we smelled. And <laughs> got all the way to got all the way to Atlanta couldn't get into our our hotel room until three o'clock and we were there at 9 a.m oh it was a disaster the whole the whole thing was a disaster but uh we sold every knife at the show um and everybody that piled in said that's a hell of a deal we'll take it and it was great we were literally assembling knives sitting at the table <laughs> Hey, I mean, you know what? That's selling them is what counts, right? That's good. Oh, and we had two sick people. My wife had come with us, and she was sick. Uh, and Kyle, he was sick. So those two were at the hotel room. I take it back. There was only four of us, and it was me and my daughter-in-law, Jamie, Kyle's wife, sitting at the table Friday and most of Saturday before we got any help. But we, they were really sick, and so we're sitting at the table reassembling knives and putting things back together. And, you know, they looked great. They didn't work for for nothing because they didn't have no guts in them and so <laughs> it was the strangest thing i'd ever done and then i got talked to one of my one of our ish friends and he said yeah that's the way i do every blade show i'm like oh my god that's the way we do I it all the time that. yeah oh, i can't man. do that he says it's okay like i'm here I but i couldn't i can't get anything done <laughs> oh man there's everybody yeah. has their own way it seems Every, everything's personal preference or like yeah, time I, crunch yeah. Yeah. I think it's time. But for I've that. had some spectacular shows. I mean, the boys and I brought 52, uh, 56 one year, sold all 56 by Saturday evening. And I found that we ended up selling one of them twice. So I had to come home and make one really quick. So we actually sold 57 knives at the show. <laughs> We've all been there with the building at shows. I've had to assemble entire batches of knives. I've had, to, I've brought knives that I didn't have a chance to sharpen and went to clay over at Wicked Edge. And I was like, Hey man, like I'm an owner of your product. I couldn't sharpen my knives. Can you give me 30 minutes on your Wicked Edge so I can sharpen these five knives? And I did it. <laughs> I taped them up so as to not get the internals all dusty. And sharpen them, dropped them. And I don't know my table like 10 minutes before the show opened up. Oh. Yeah, I went over to Wilmot and sharpened one one year. Asked him if I could use their grinder to sharpen a knife. He says, as long as I can take pictures, I just have a ball. <laughs> you go for it. Take as many pictures yep. as you want. Yeah, I actually left the show one time and went to, any of you guys heard of Bill Harsey? Spartan Knives? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's a friend of ours. He's, he's, up, he's between uh, Eugene and me. And I was at the Eugene show and I was delivering a knife and had a big fat thumbprint on the blade. Uh, somebody either was eating an orange or something and left enough citrus on their thumb or something. And it could have been myself. Um, in fact, it was oh, probably man. me. But uh, yeah, big etched thumbprint. Damn, so that's gonna suck. I asked him if I could use his shop. He said, hey, have a ball. So I went all the way back down to his place, whopping 30 minutes, 25 minutes from the show, rebuffed and cleaned that blade, put it all back together and came back and delivered it. So hey. That's all. So that's Bill, all. That's all part of it. Yeah, yeah, it is. Bill Harsey's in Oregon. Yeah, yeah, Cresswell, that. Cresswell, Oregon. Yeah, if you come yeah. down to see me, you might call him and drop by and say hi on your way through. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> he's kind of, yeah, he's pretty famous. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, and be prepared. When he shakes him, your yeah, hand. He's yeah. gonna. Well, when he shakes your hand, remember he's a logger. He don't. He don't shake like no limp fish. I gotta say, no one's shook my hand as hard as my dad. So, like, he's got. He still has the hardest handshake of any man I've ever met. So, well, you let know. me know when you shake Bill's hand if it's any better or any worse. <laughs> Dude, there's no telling. He's a pretty stout man, big guy. Being, being the. The, the guy that, that does what I do in the shop that I do it in, I guess, because my dad's not around anymore, um, is kind of a big chunk of responsibility that I don't think I was ever prepared for. But, uh, you know, having my kids and uh, a grandbaby, I have a grand new, I have a beautiful little baby girl, grandbaby, five and a half months old. Um, it makes every day a little bit, a little bit interesting, you know. Uh, like I said, I was born and raised in the, in uh, San Jose, California, Sunnyvale, California. Been to many Baca shows, um, tons and tons of uh, San Francisco shows, just all over in the Bay Area originally. And uh, having the, you know, moving out of there and getting out of that sewage pit um, and moving up here was probably the the best thing I've ever done for, for myself. And my wife is a originally from Alaska. So this is more like home for her than the Bay area was. And, uh, we live on the side of a mountain, on uh, 13 acres. Uh, and we live, uh, about a mile off of the freeway or off of the river. And so in the summertime, we get to go swimming and fishing and, uh, the wintertime it's, uh, pretty noisy and wet so but it's uh you know watching the world go by and watching the stuff that's been going on over the last couple of years is uh i'm really glad i'm not in uh in the cities anymore yeah i'm, I'm i just moved to one and i'm thinking about leaving already <laughs> yeah especially portland lately good god Oh yeah, I'll I'll definitely uh, stick with the Pacific Northwest because I have definitely fa- fallen in love with the the just the gorgeous scenery everywhere. It's just incredible. It's it's beautiful. It's beautiful. And see, the shop is uh, five minutes off of I five, but I live thirty minutes from the shop um, towards the coast. And uh, you know, I live w- literally way out in the sticks. In fact, I was telling Jeremiah, my phone will not receive texts or phone calls out here. Oh yeah. Um, mostly because it's a cheesy carrier, but <laughs> <laughs> also because uh, we just recently got fiber, and before that we had DSL, oh. and then we only had DSL for about four, four or five years, and prior to that we had uh, dial-up. Oh wow! Um, and so we've literally only had decent internet for about the last eight years. <laughs> Well, you know, better late than never kind of thing. Oh, yeah. We got a gig now. It's nice. Oh, yeah. See, there you are. But, yeah, it's kind of strange. I, I didn't realize how, how how young Nick was to begin with. How old are you, yeah, most, most people Most people don't. They're like, wait, you've known us for this long? I'm like, yeah, it just <laughs> happened that way. I'm uh, I'm 26. No, you're both probably fairly young then. Yeah, we're, he's exactly two years older. Yeah, you're yeah. the first person to ask me, actually, uh that I've had to tell since I turned 26. <laughs> it That was like a week ago, guy. I well, moved up here no when I turned. Asks me how. <laughs> That's not a question you get too often. Yeah, we had two kids um, 
before we moved up here. And uh, I think I was 27 when we moved up here. And uh, 26, maybe, something like that. So about the same time, you know. And then I worked at making plywood for three years, better part of three years anyway, and learned to make knives in the meantime. And by the time my the mill I was working in went down, I was making knives almost full time at that time. Um, but I was making automatics and folders and, and stuff like that then. Um, and I've been doing automatics literally since that, since 1991. In fact, the first year knives are, are uh, Rainy Valentine custom knives in 91. And at the end of that year, I quit using that stamp. So anyone, any of them marked 91 are the first year I made knives full time. Hmm. That's a good bit of collector info. Yeah, most okay. people don't know that. Um, huh. and then they were stamped again for a while, and then we went to the Diamond Scratch. And, uh, so 90, 94 or 95, we went to the Diamond Scratch. So anything prior to that's the second, third, and maybe fourth year I've been making knives. Hmm. Okay. So, so the... All right. Yeah. That that reminded me of something, but the... So the Viper logo is associated with the valid name how does yes. the use i mean you use that you use the viper actually i don't use the viper v uh my the boys do um with my dad's conversions that they were doing okay his logo still goes on them um and in fact uh you guys are going to start to see another viper v come out again uh on a limited edition uh for a tribute to my pop here in the very near future um, and there'll be a kind of up your, your alley, Nick, they're going to be frame lock machines, uh, but they'll be of the chameleon. Um, at least the yeah, first so set. Pretty much the frame locks. I'm getting into coil fired button autos, but I've always wanted to make a dual action. Just, uh, maybe you at gotta, some point. You got to make your yeah. own coil though. <laughs> no, thinking your own coils are stupid. Got to make it full <laughs> custom. I'm not a, I'm, I've never been a quail fan, but they, they, they serve their purpose and they work really well, you know? No, um, I designed up a, a dual action. Um, I just don't have time to make it, but I kind of have one where the sear and everything fits in there with the actuator and with the scale release version. Uh, kind of actually designed it, not necessarily a scale release, um, I took inspiration from the Spyderco, uh, you guys do, when I saw it at Jair Shop. Okay. Uh, with the little bolster slide. Right. But I wanted it to be a frame lock with everything hidden on the in inside of the line of the frame and just as have a that little bolster piece. No, as a dual action. Oh, okay. So, cool. yeah, so, with, a, with a leaf spring. So yeah. instead of the whole scale movement, I was watching mm. your Spyderco where that little hat, that little one inch wide bolster area slides. Right. So I actually wanted to make it as a frame lock with just this little with this little bolster inlay thing, and that slides, and the mechanism is on the inside of the actual full tie handle, and it kind of works. It's gonna need some advanced tooling and some advanced cam tool pads to make the make it work. You can go to town with a Dremel, but that's not what I do uh, to get it out there. Or it, it, it the, in theory it works, but I've never done it, so I don't know. <laughs> it was just right. something I was messing around with that one yeah. time, every so often. Cool. That mm. sounds interesting. First, I thought you were talking about a scale release coiler, on a, dual action. Yeah. I thought, wow, you've been looking under the SOCOM lids. 
Yeah, I was about to say that. I, I heard the chameleons tried that, but they didn't really work. No, the, the dual action coil fired. Hmm. Yeah, the chameleons yeah, it's were, the dual were action. breaking. Yeah, they were breaking. Those were all uh, Microtech. Yep. Um, um, they had some other issues too that we walked them through, but yeah, but uh, yeah, the SOCOM was actually the first coiler button release that's dual action. Um, thanks to Tony's maniacal mind. Hmm. But, uh, Has anyone done a uh, a scale release where the scale just slides forward a little bit? Yep, me. I was about to say, because it makes perfect sense. Yeah, it's called the slide winder. Yeah, because instead of instead of having like a mech to push that sear over, why not just attach the sear to the damn scale? Actually, the first one I did is just the bolster, mm-hmm. but there's a saddle uh, and a spring system that draws the bolster back into place, um, and it's got guides. I mean, I... I I, there's probably a hundred easier ways to do it than the way I did it, but um, you slid it forward. It actually had bearings under the bolster because it's really hard to make those two cooperate with each other. Titanium and Damas and uh, titanium and Damascus and titanium and steel are not fond of each other, or they're too fond of each other depending on the situation. But um, polished and buffed and clean, they still didn't want to move slickly. So I actually put bearings underneath the bolster and made the first double action liner lock slide forward bolster release and it was called the slide winder and then there's another one where i slid the whole handle like you were just talking about scale both bolsters scale and all um and then my dad actually made a slide action 45 out the front um that's what we called it you grab the handle and you slide the top scale out and it locked the blade under the under the handle and then you slid it back in place and fired the button, and it was out the front. They're rare. There's only maybe six of them ever. I want to see one of those now. Oh, oh wait, wait. He, so it opens normally. Wait, you explain no, it's more. Out, it's out the front. I absolutely the top can't scale. The top scale actually draws the blade, locks the function when you slide the handle back to its original position. So it looks just you. like a handle with nothing in it. Then you push the button, and the blade comes out. Um, hmm. It had a secondary Damn, cool. lock that locked the blade by itself. So you push the lock, slide it back, relock the blade, put the handle back in the original position. Hard to make, I assume. Oh, uh, yeah. There's I was always wondering six. how my dad had hair longer than I did. <laughs> it was uh, it was his forte, though. That's what he that's what he did best. Um, he's got multiple patents. Uh, He's got people that designed and used his designs all over the place. I mean, how many patents I, are under the valve name? I think he has six or eight. That's impressive. Um, I actually have one that I my name isn't mentioned in by with Tony. Um, you would know it as the LCC function or the MTX2. I was, yeah, I was my, meant to ask about that MTX project. Yeah, that was uh, that was actually my function. He was I was paid for it. I was paid by him to use it, but he didn't ask me if he could patent it. So, but it's you know it's water under the bridge by a great many years. That was a couple of days ago. Yeah, long time ago. Hmm. I, got, I got a handsome paycheck out of it, but you know. Yeah, the the patent thing is tricky with um with mechanisms. 
It is. Uh, design patents are even worse. Yeah. I mean, because you must have a yeah, the patents on the on the sears, the sear patents. That gets. Yeah, that gets tricky. Anyway. Well, it, there's a lot involved. Right. There's sure. a lot of patents out there. There's a lot of design patents out there. In fact, if you're really smart, you're watching those design patents because if somebody doesn't pay the upkeep on them, you can actually not only produce them, but you can kick in and take some of those patents by um, changing information and adapting those into your own patent. Um, at least you could at one time. Now you can just, I know that you can watch them and as soon as they don't, nobody pays the maintenance on them and they go public, then anybody can use them. So Yeah, I was just talking to then, Jason about that because the access lock yeah, is, is really kicked off. free roam now. Mm. Yeah. Uh, that's one of, you know, that's one of a great many ways to, you know, to get that. Then you got to remember, you got to change it like at least 35 to 40% to create a new function off of an original, like, you know, if you wanted to take the access lock, see, and I watched Bill design that and stuff, you know, in all intents and purposes, by the way, that's really the bolt action lock only run by a pair of, uh, by a spring and a couple of pull points rather than a slide point. So I was always amazed he got that patent through, but um, them and Benchlade fell in love with it. So they did great stuff with it. Yeah. Yeah. They made a couple knives with that on it. Yeah. One but or two. For all intents and purposes, if you look at it, it's the original bolt action. Hmm. Yeah. Just, I, I kind of see what you're saying. Just the way it pulls like that. Yeah. Well, the way that it, the way that it locks up the back of the blade. Yeah. It literally just locks up the rear of the tang so that it won't fold. And the original bolt action while a little more elaborate than this, did exactly the same thing. Um, there's actually about 15 or 20 actions out there that do the same thing. But I was just about to say that, yeah, like they're all variants of the same kind of thing. Yeah. And then Spyderco yeah. had the ball lock. It's pretty much the yeah. same thing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I played with doing that one for a long time. I didn't get it to, to work like I wanted it to. Um, uh, so I never really chased that one out. But the interesting thing is my dad designed the world's first assisted opener. <laughs> the only problem was he thought it was broken. <laughs> so he fixed it so it wouldn't do that anymore. Um, if you end up ever getting a knife called the drawbar, that's the world's first assisted opener. Nobody really knows it because he couldn't, you know, he thought it was broken. It wasn't supposed to work that way. Like, wait a minute. That's not right. Uh, yeah. That ended up being a big selling point. Yeah, well, it would have been a really great selling point if he'd have, you know, seen what it was capable of at that point. But, uh, yeah, basically the drop bar was a bar that was uh, an assisted bar with a slight spring in the tail. So you flick the blade open and the bar actually became your lock, not your liner lock, but it locked up in the same place as the liner lock with a little ball, an eccentric ball on the end of the spring into an eccentric notch. And then when you wanted to unlock it, you just pushed the bar out of the way and folded it up. But it would work. It would work as an assisted. And he had to fight with it to try and make it not work as an assisted um, back in the day. And if he'd have known what he was doing, he literally developed the first assisted opener. Hmm. What year was that, you think? Oh, my God. 90, 92? I had one in here not too long ago. It actually lives in Moscow, Russia. I had to work on it. Um, 
92 or 93. Oh, wow. That was, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Long before assisteds were even a dream. The uh, word hadn't even been thrown coined. around at all. Yeah. No, he had just coined the, the term double action uh, in a knife uh, at the time, somewhere around the same time frame that uh, the liner lock uh, term was coined by Mike Walker. Michael Walker, yeah. See, see, he wanted to. He wanted to be. He wanted to patent that. Except uh, there was two companies. Case was one of them. Charade was another one that had a thing called a liner safety. Um, back God in the fifties. Oh yeah, the, the liner lock with it on it. Yeah, that's yeah. existed. And it's previously. just a little brass safety bar that's part of the liner that comes over, and it doesn't lock it open. It just gets in the way, you know. Um, but I had one with perlite on it, and uh, one side was a uh, uh, slip joint, and the other side was uh, liner safety. So he couldn't he couldn't patent it, but he could coin the phrase liner lock, which he did. Yeah, the the terminology also becomes very uh, liner very safety crucial. Have the same ring to it? No, no, it's it not. doesn't. Yeah, and it didn't lock it open. Like I said, it, it while it did lock it open, as in you couldn't close it with the safety in the way the blade wasn't tight. It flopped around. Um, it had enough movement, you know, that it wasn't, wasn't really tight, uh, but it was still a slip joint. So it'd stay open, but it, that safety wouldn't interrupt it soon enough to be considered a lock by any stretch. Yeah. The patent, patent terminology. That's, that's a whole other can of worms right there. Uh, I've, I've, done my fair share of patent reading and it's you really yeah like you said that the amount it has to change to to repatent something like that and to refile yep becomes yep. tricky becomes tricky a lot of work yeah. something i've never been wanting to dig into but then again you know that's why i got a cnc kid because i don't want to do that either that's the spirit <laughs> yeah you might call me lazy as far as that goes i love what i do i truly truly enjoy what I do every day. Um, but uh, when it comes to that, that CNC box and, you know, sitting down drawing on a program, I, I've done it, but it's not my forte. I don't like it. Not my thing. I don't blame you. I miss with the old ways. Every time it was something different. And when, before I had the CNC, I did it for three years full time prior. And now it's, yeah, when you make something, a new model or something new, but now I have a set in stone process for every folder I do doesn't matter the design it's all the same components frame lock wise and it just becomes kind of synonymous like the same thing in and out hit the green button and let it rip go put it parts aside do it 60 more times obviously there's more to it usually it's prior to hitting the green button once you're ready to hit that green button you just have to change the tools once in a while and after that's ready Put them together, set lock and need time, grind them. Okay, what, what, what finish? Cool. Next. It's kind of the same thing. I get more excited for like fixed blades and these little one-off things on the side than folders these days because it's kind of the same thing these days. Yeah, after we did 250 Sidewinders, I was definitely ready to go do something, anything else. <laughs> That's a lot of knives, but it feels it was like a job it. at that point. <laughs> you know, this yeah. thing called a job. It was a lot like a job. Yeah. And today I, you know, I get to do new stuff every day or, you know, all the time. So, and then 
somebody waltzes me into something new, you know, it, it, something's new all the time. If it gets stagnant, I wouldn't enjoy it, but you know, uh, doing something new, trying something new, finding another way of doing something you've been doing for years that takes a fraction of the time. Um, you know, anything like that is nice. I just, no, I think it's, I think it's great to, to see the, um, the continuation of, of sort of the whole process, the switchblades, the dual actions, the conversions, um, you know, the, the Valentins are a, a crucial, uh, piece of the puzzle in the knife industry that has, has given so much and, you know, deserves to be certainly at the, at the forefront of the, um, of the automatic movement. Thank you. We'll be doing some new stuff soon. So it'll be fun to play with. And, uh, I'll, uh, see to it. You get to take a peek on the early end. Absolutely. Yeah. I'd, I'd love to want to, want to stay, want to stay as, as up to date as I can. Um, and looking forward to looking forward to new projects. Um, you know, with, with you and with Corey and certainly with Kyle, uh, it'll be all of us actually. So, <laughs> Oh, see, there we go. Yeah. We'll be doing it as a group. Nice. Okay. The the ultimate family collaboration. Uh-huh. It'll be the ultimate. Yeah. It'll be really what we were hoping to do for a great many years, but we'll get to do it. Uh, provided I can light fires under some tails, but yeah. <laughs> like, that's awesome. Uh, that's great to hear. I, I love it. Um, I think... Uh, I think on that note, I think we've we've reached a pretty good uh, a pretty good spot um, for for tonight. And uh, Rainy, I really I really do. I th- thank you so much for taking time out of your out of your night and uh, and jumping on here and, and talking with us. I hope that uh, I hope we can do this again because I know there are more yeah. stories. Oh yeah, lots, <laughs> a lot of years. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We'll we'll do a we'll do a follow up a part two. Cool. Sounds fun. Um, on that note, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to start it and I'll, I'll sign off. This is Jeremiah Burbank from PVK Vegas. Everybody. Thanks so much for listening to another great episode of the Bladeology podcast. This is Nick Chuprin from NCC knives and you could find me at NCC knives on Instagram or my website, nccknives.com. Thank you. This is Elijah Isham of Isham Bladeworks. You can find me at Isham Bladeworks on Instagram and Gmail. Thank you. And this is Rainy Valentin. You can find me at rainyvck.com. And we'll talk to you all later. Bye.